Life is hard when you don't know who you are. It's harder when you don't know what you are. My love carries a death sentence. I was lost for years, searching while hiding, only to find that I belong to a world hidden from humans. I won't hide anymore. I will live the life I choose. This is episode 58 of Fatalist, a podcast devoted to the supernatural series Lost Girl and all things sci-fi, supernatural, fantasy, and horror. My name is Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, and we are in the post-Christmas blues. What's up? So, how you doing, man? Yeah, not 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 so bad this year, the post-Christmas blues. Uh you know, actually, we had a little bit of snow here in uh, in Maryland, so uh, ended up doing some sledding today with the kids and everything. It was fun. Yeah, it was pretty good. I mean, even though it only snowed like maybe three, four inches up our way, it was the kind of snow that y- it probably gave a great base for sledding. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. It was yeah, great. So it was perfect. As long as you had some hills there. Yeah, we do. We, there's a, a park right by our house that has a really great hills that we usually use for uh, wrecking bikes on, but today it was for sledding. All right, cool. Well, just, uh, you know, before we do a little bit of our, you know, typical chit-chat stuff, you know, tonight we're going to be looking at two episodes, just like the old days, Wayne, when we remember back in the day when we actually did four episodes in one podcast. Did we do four at once? We, yeah, I think we did four at least once, maybe twice, but at least once. Oh, but that's t- right. It was like the, we did the, like the last four of right, season two. We were just like sweating it, getting a season two done before season three started. Yeah. We're going to look at... Episode seven, La Fay Epoch, and episode eight, Groundhog Fay tonight. So, you know, we got a lot to look at and talk about. And, you know, again, there hasn't been a whole lot to watch, but of course, the Christmas episode of Doctor Who. And I think we both agree there. It was pretty good. Yeah, right? it was great. It was really, really good. I liked it. Uh, awesome send off for Matt Smith. I thought he did a great job. You know, a tour de force acting job throughout the entire show. I think it really carried it. Uh, the story I didn't think was super strong, but I don't think it was supposed to be strong. I think it was supposed to be really, you know, Matt Smith and his element. Uh, a lot of plot devices to explain things that have happened the last three seasons that haven't been explained. But, uh, and in the end, a really kind of satisfying send off. And I'm actually excited for, uh, for Pierre Capaldi. As the next yeah, doctor. I'm I'm still a little bit lukewarm on him. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not against it. Anyway, uh, but other than that, I'm I'm nearing the end of my run on Andromeda, and it's awesome. Oh, you almost done? Yeah, almost done. I got wow. four four it's episodes like the to end go. End of an epoch. Yeah, so I'm not sure where I'm going next, but you know, I think we'll have a lot of our shows coming back pretty soon. So that's certainly certainly a good thing. Yeah, a lot of stuff uh, starting up soon. Um, and actually, I was just checking it out today because uh, every now and then I check up on when Being Human US is going to start back up. And so it's actually going to start up uh, January 13th, I think is the day. 17th, 13th, 13th. Same day that uh, Lost Girl is going to premiere on Sci-Fi. Right, on the, in the US, right. Yes. So, But other than that, you know, why don't we just jump right right ahead into the news unless you got anything else you want yeah, to throw let's, out there let's uh just do it to it all right just a, a couple items because it's you know that time of the year when things are relatively slow in the genre world but the search for one of sci-fi's most iconic characters has been going on for a while now but the search is over 
and Amelia Clark has signed on to portray Sarah Connor in the Terminator reboot to be directed by Alan Taylor. Now, genre fans can't be disappointed as the Game of Thrones badass Khaleesi, a.k.a. Daenerys Targaryen, will reprise the role originated by Linda Hamilton and later by her Game of Thrones co-star Lena Headey in the Fox TV Terminator The Sarah Connor Chronicles. Release date of July 1st, 2015 has been set, so I'm psyched, man. Yeah, that's yeah, a good call. I was, you know, obviously, we were pulling for Tatiana Maslany, but still, that's that's a good call. She's yeah, now, I don't strong know if she actress. Was, was she in the running, Tatiana Maslany? Yeah, you would, you, you're the one who said she was. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not sure if that was just speculation. Okay. Well, or, it, it made it to the news one time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so this is awesome choice, and I, I'm sure she'll go. In fact, most of the photos I've seen of her, she has dark hair. She so does have the, dark hair, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, the only other piece. She's still, she's, a, like, tiny. You know, she's going to have to, like, do some do some lifting. Yeah, well, I'm not. Sarah, unless, uh, is this Sarah Connor before the Terminator, or is this, because this is a big difference. Because you know, Sarah Connor, when we first meet her in the first Terminator movie, is is she's soft, right? And she's just a regular waitress. Right. And then all the other ones, she's you know she's like Linda Hamilton, buff. And then uh, Lena Headey uh, was buff too. You know, like she's like you know tough and strong. And so, yeah. Now, how far are you in Game of Thrones? Uh, I've seen the first two seasons. I got through oh, okay. season one and two. I got season three on order. And season four, I might have to just start <laughs> subscribing to HBO there you go. by the time season four comes around. So, yeah, it was that was what a great series, man. It's really awesome. Yeah, well, you're going to love season three. Yeah, I can't wait. And, you know, the end of season one, the uh, WTF moment there at the end, well, yes. it's even more intense in season Right, four. it was like, I remember, I remember I've seen, Oh, you like, read the books. Yeah, yeah, it's all about the uh, the red wedding and everything, and I, yeah. I vaguely kind of remember that. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I read the books and everything, so... Well, f- well forget everything you know. So. <laughs> all right, now, the only other piece I have is there's a new adaptation of Robert Heinlein's novel, Starship Trooper, which was first adapted in 1997 by Paul Verhoeven, and, you know, the 97 films kind of become a cult classic. Now, this one's supposed to be significantly different from the 97 film. Producer Toby Jaffe said it's going to be less violent, less comical, and, quote, tonally closer to something like Minority Report, while attempting to be more faithful to Heinlein's book. Zach Stentz, X-Men First Class, uh, wrote the screenplay for the remake with his frequent collaborator, Edward Miller, who... Together, they've also signed on to help script Star Trek Three, And again, they both acknowledge that the film's going to be more faithful to the source material. Uh, you're, you, you've seen the Starship Troopers, right? Not really, actually. Oh, you know, it's really, you know, I enjoy it. I mean, it, it, is it good science fiction? Is it a good ab- adaptation? Yeah, probably not, but it's a, it's a fun flick. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris is in it. Uh, Denise uh, Richards is in it. Denise Richards is in it, and uh, my favorite, Dina Meyer, is in it, and it's definitely worth taking a look. It's it's yeah, it's certainly got a lot of satirical elements to it, but it's definitely worth taking a look. It's not a long film; it's probably only like ninety, a hundred minutes. All right, I'll, I'll consider it. So, anyway, all right, um, we got one listener feedback this week, and. and uh, from Sally and uh, Sally, I think you might have 
started talking before you hit the record button because uh, what, what came through sounded like you, you were right in mid-sentence. But w- what did come across in your feedback clip was that Sally feels like Bo's not really respecting Dyson's feelings for her. And I, I certainly think she's accurate. And we kind of talked about that, you know, last podcast when, you know, they're going at it and, you know, Dyson's look at me and, you know, no, she won't. And I, I certainly agree with her on that one. Uh, yeah, but, uh, I, I mean, I kind of do, but it's, you know, it kind of like is back and forth with them. And, you know, it's just like this roller coaster type relationship that actually, you know, what I'm going to say is what I liked about these next two episodes is how does it kind of back off on all that stuff and really kind of start focusing on the relationship between Dyson and, uh, Lauren, which I thought was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, sometimes it just makes your head hurt all this back and forth with, you know, Dyson, Lauren, Lauren, Dyson, Dyson, Bo, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. Oh, but, uh, but yeah, in that scene, I would, I would have to say though, you know, I showed my, in the last uh, podcast, my disdain for Dyson and his whinging in the sack there. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of, for sure that, you know, like, you know, Bo could probably handle being a little bit more sensitive yeah. there. Hey, she's Dark Faye, so, you know, yeah, what, do you, dark what do you expect? Faye. Exactly. All right. Well, why don't you give us a little bit of Project X, and you got some cool stuff tonight, I know. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's actually some good uh, material to work with here. So uh, the first thing we'd like to talk about is because actually the, the title of Episode 7 is The Belle Epoque, and it means it's French for the beautiful era. So it's like this period in basically European history, obviously mostly focuses on France, uh, starting with about the end of the Franco-Prussian War and ending with World War One, And it's this kind of time, it's, it's a, a time of relative peace in Europe. Uh, you know, if you really think about Europe, at some, one, at least one, if not all of Europe, between Britain and uh, the, the Low Countries and France and Germany and Prussia, had pretty much been at constant war for you know since like the middle ages you know like there are i think very few periods of of extended periods of peace and so they have this time uh of you know again relative peace uh that um you know what happens in peacetime is that well the arts are now able to um progress technology is able to progress a lot of stuff that when you have time you're not worried about you know the the myriad horrors of war uh you can focus on writing poetry and making music or creating bigger weapons or you know inventing a car or new inventions stuff like that uh so it's just kind of this age of general optimism and you know it was supposed to be where people were better off and they were if you were rich but like for most periods that when you're the the wealthy can appreciate and the poor people are still poor and you know and not able to you know they those were the people going to the cabarets and all that stuff though they did have you know cabarets for the you know lower class as well as the upper classes but whenever you see something on TV or when you go to a person's house and they have those you know like the posters for French cabarets and things like that and that kind of uh um, like symbolist style, or uh, I think it was symbolism, you know, certainly not like post impressionism, I guess. And uh, that was La Belle Epoque. I mean, this is the time of, of Van Gogh, um, I believe, uh, also the time for the, the like the later 
the the expressionists, the front, you know, and uh, in Germany. Um, so there's a lot of stuff just kind of going on. You know, we got new inventions, cars, telephones, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And uh, we actually experienced kind of the same thing in America. Uh, but we call it, instead of calling it the beautiful era, we call it the Gilded Age, where was, we had this kind of realization in America that it was a time when people thought things were really awesome, but in reality, they weren't so awesome. Yeah. yeah. They were awesome for the industrialists, but... Right. Yeah, exactly. For the haves, they were awesome. For the have-nots, like any era, it sucked. Um, but you know, it's just kind of like, I think all cu- cultures have this kind of elegiac tradition where you think back of oh, the good old days, right? There was a, a time when things were better and people were nicer and you, know, you didn't, the, your cares were less and it's still kind of like, I know when I was growing up, it was like, that was like the fifties, right? Like the fifties, the leave it to beaver type era. That's when, you know, everyone's lawns were neat and the kids all had their hair parted nicely and said, gee whiz and gosh darn and yes, ma'am and no ma'am. And everything was just kind of like better than it is in these crappy times now. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, one thing I ran across and, you know, certainly stop me if I'm stepping on something you were going to talk about. But, you know, along with these cabarets in Paris of the 1890s that, you know, they were very big on supernatural nightlife options. And in the 1899 book, Bohemian Paris of Today by William Chambers Morrow and Edward Sussell, the authors visited several of the City of Light's darker drinking destinations, such as Cabaret Neant, which translates to the Cabaret of Nothingness. And at this Gothic night spot, visitors pondered their own mortality as they drank on coffins. They were served libations named after diseases by people dressed as monks and funeral attendees. And, you know, you had... Uh, uh, drinks served in imitation human skulls. There was also this thing known as Pepper's Ghost, which was often performed there. And basically, you'd see a man or a woman changed into a skeleton in front of the audience's eyes and obviously performed with the aid of uh, hidden and optical trickery. But, you know, we certainly got a, a taste of that in this Lost Girl episode, but it sounds like they were even more over the top in reality. Yeah, and that's kind of the same idea that there is this dark side, you know, no matter how you romanticize something, there's kind of like there's a dark underbelly of everything. And, uh, you know, you only come up with ideas like that if you have like leisure time and you're not worried about the Germans banging at your door. You can say, hey, I'm going to start a club where we just, you know, drink on coffins and drink blood and stuff. But one thing I saw, and I'll, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I want to get this in now and make sure, is that, you know, it seems like we've had for the Fae this extended period of peace, right? That they've seen both sides are, uh, it's a tenuous peace, right? That yeah. We've seen that since season one. Uh, very sketchy, very fragile. That a lot of minor things have already threatened it where people are worried about all out war breaking out. Well, you know, and I've said before, this is, you know, Europe in 1814, right. It's experiencing this same kind of tenuous peace where people think things are okay, but still realize that it's, you know, can be easily all hell can break loose. And I think we're seeing what we're seeing now is, you know, Sarajevo, or we're going to have that Sarajevo soon, that spark that's going to ignite all-out war between the Fey, 
Uh, I think that's the the name of this episode is certainly indicative that something awful is about to happen that's going to result in complete catastrophe. Yeah, but I guess the interesting thing is, though, certainly like the United States and the Soviet Union bonding together in World War II against the Germans, you know, the the light and the darker sort out. I wouldn't say they're bonding together, but with the greater threat of the Una Mens looming overhead. So, I mean, I still I still think you're right. I th- I still think we have catastrophe down the road, but um, uh, I, I like the fact that I really have no idea where it's going to come from. Sure. Sure, but as you say, when you remove the Una Mens from the picture, not unlike maybe what happened in the 1980s, 1990s, when Russia, I'm sorry, the Soviet Union pulled out of Eastern Europe, like, you know, Yugoslavia and, and the, the the Baltics, you know, went crazy, you know, going after each other as soon as the Soviets were gone. So maybe something like that is going to happen too. Well, Bowen company better find the other hell shoe and get the, the Una Mens on their way. Yeah. What? Yeah. Something's going to happen. We know that. All right. So let's move on. The next one is Krampus, who obviously is a big part of episode eight. And he's pretty much as they described in the show, the beast like creature um, has big horns. Uh, Actually. So the, the feast of St. Nicholas is December 6th. Right. And so, uh, you know, the Europe, I'll, I'll celebrate, you know, the Feast of St. Nicholas on, on the 6th. And so Krampus it comes around the night before. So Krampus knocked is the night before uh, um, the, the, the St. Nick night, whatever, the Feast of St. Nicholas. And so it's basically, as it described in the show, a, it's basically a time of incredible drinking. People running around dressed as Krampus. Um, you know, the idea is that Krampus will come around, snatch away the naughty children, and then the next day, St. Nick rolls in and rewards all the kids who are still around, the, the nice kids. So, you know, it's like you know, very, very, so almost, you know, word for word, just as I did, except that, you know, it's something that uh, they, they still celebrate. Like, they still have Krampus knock. They still celebrate in, in Europe. And Krampus himself is, like, um, kind of, like, hungry, uh, Eastern Austria... Western, Eastern Europe, and Eastern, Western Europe, I guess we could say, uh, is where Krampus is. But almost every country in Europe has some version of Krampus. Um, We have, uh, let me see, Um, we have Necht Ruprecht in Germany. Uh, Well, they really uh, played up the naughty and nice elements in this episode yeah, yeah, yeah. uh wallonia uh frere futard in france uh, uh bells nickel again in germany and probably the most controversial version of krampus is the dutch version the savarta pete uh which means black pete and the reason well, I mean, you can imagine why, like, you know, so here's a, this guy, the scary guy who comes around and he's, uh, of has, is a uh, black skinned. Uh, so that in itself obviously demonstrates the kind of deep seated, uh, racism <laughs> without use of a better word, um, which would, is kind of maybe bad enough in itself. And the, the reason it's controversial is because they still have big celebrations, 
uh, of St. Nicholas Day that always they have, you know, for the traditionalists say, well, you got to have Black Pete there to celebrate. Well, Black Pete is always, you know, a, a guy, a Dutch guy in blackface. So it just really is not working on like a bunch of levels. But the, the one side says it's tradition, you know, there's, it's not harmless. I'm not, it's not harmless. It's not harmful. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be racist. It's just a tradition. And then uh, a lot of other people look at it and say uh, it is incredibly racist. You know, yes, you can say it's your tradition, but that's because this tradition comes from a very dark place in history, a dark place in the uh, you know in in our in in just the, the the in the world, and that it should be stopped. So now a lot of people have um, the their they don't call him Black Peter anymore, but he has like kind of like a rainbow colored face and stuff like that. Um, so some places have have started that, but there, I guess even this year there was a big uh, um, demonstration uh, the day before. Um, this celebration was to take place in uh, in Amsterdam, and uh, like people were arrested and everything, and they still carried on and, and did. But there's been places that have completely canceled. I think uh, there was a place maybe in Canada that completely canceled uh, their Saint Nicholas festival because, like, well, if you know if you're gonna make a big deal about Black Pete, and we can't have Black Pete in it, then we're not gonna do it at all. So there, how do you like that? You know, so um, you know, it's just it's uh it's crazy. All right. All right. And so the last one then is Elk Paneer, the stag that Trick mentions that is on his uh, his sweater. And then the uh, the dude uh, who is snatching people from the party uh, takes umbrage at there being a Rudolph, which he said, this is not Elk Paneer. Um, well, that's Krampus' son, right? Yes. Jeffrey, right. I couldn't remember his name there for a second. Jeffrey. Uh, but so Elkpadir is a stag from Valhalla, Norse mythology, and the four rivers of life apparently run from his horns. And it leads down to, um, I guess it feeds into the tree of uh, Yggdrasil, which we talked about before, you know, with the lady protecting the tree, the, you know, the, the hag who takes uh, Dyson's love and everything. So that's an actual thing as well. And that's, I'm out. That's it. That's all I got. All right. Well, cool. All right. Well, we got a lot to talk about with the episodes. And the first one, obviously, 407, the Fey Epoch, the Fey Era, I suppose. Uh, and I, the I, seem, I, I seem to be wrong more often than I'm right. But uh, Michael Grassi wrote this episode. Yes. And Steve DeMarco directed. Correct. All right. Good. Got it right this time. All right. So, um, you know, like we were talking about the other day at work, uh, my problem with where we are in Lost Girl right now is that, you know, it's it's almost like I feel like they're relying too much on storytelling gimmickry. And, you know, this whole setting it in, you know, 1890s Paris, you know, why? For what reason? Because it's uh, awesome. Well, you know, you know, so that you know, Zoe Palmer uh, can dress up in you know 1890s and you know sing these you know torch songs, which I- I'm pretty sure that was her singing. It, I mean, it was it was either her singing or an 
excellent job of, of uh, dubbing and lip syncing. Well, I mean, but even if it was her dub, it just really sounded like, and she's, you know, whoever it was has, has an awesome voice. Yeah, no, you she know? did. It, I, I think I was, as I watched that, like, I was like thinking the same thing. Like, I, I think that might actually be Zoe Palmer singing, and she's got, you know, quite a good voice. Right. And, you know, has all the stage presence. And, and you know, so, so don't misunderstand me, but I guess just, you know, what was the whole purpose of doing it that way? It, to me, it, it's almost because you can. And as a storytelling technique, it just, I mean, I liked it. I enjoyed it. But, you know, at the end, I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, why? And then when we see episode eight, where they're basically just giving us you know, Groundhog Day in, you know, our Lost Girl world, uh, again, another gimmick. Well, I don't think it's a gimmick. I think it's just nonlinear storytelling, and that's exactly why I really like these two episodes, because it gets out of that kind of cliche procedural type thing, this rut I think they've kind of been in in a number of the episodes this year. But we're at episode freaking eight. And we still have no more information about the Wanderer. Well, that's not exactly true. Oh, okay. So, I mean, we get a little bit from Tamsin, and I know we're jumping ahead. And, you know, okay, he's this evil dude. And now we're thinking, you know, we've got evidence that maybe he's not Bo's father after all. But, you know, we'll get to that down the well, road. Well, so. no, I think Tamsin kind of strongly suggests that he is Bo's father. Well, doesn't she say something about, you know, he, he wants to make uh, cre- like, create a mate, right? So much so that he would make it himself. Yeah, but yeah, it's creepy. But the suggestion okay. is that he is her father in some way or another, or at least her creator, and that he also intends to be her mate. Ugh, okay. Yeah, it's it's, anyway. it's it's pretty. It's creepy. Okay. Think about it. But he's supposed to be like pure evil. So like if you're pure evil, like incest is just kind of like run of the mill, right? Like Yeah. So all right. Well, anyway, all right. So we see in the opening scene, uh, Dyson and Kenzie meet Hale at the police station. And, you know, I this I guess he's a eunuch monk in tow. And they find out that the Unamens don't care that Dyson and Bo slept together. They want Dyson for a murder that he supposedly committed in 1899 uh, where humans and Faye were killed. Right. It's so only my, take them a hundred and some years to catch up to him. Right. But uh, so I guess he's been, my, li- he's been like really keeping low key too in that time. That no, It's no wonder that they had so much difficulty finding him. All right. So, you know, one of the things that occurs to me, you know, why are the Una men's intent on bringing Dyson to justice at this time? So, I mean, I guess it has something to do with they want you know, the hell shoes. Yeah, everything to do with them wanting the hell shoes, yeah. Okay, but, you know, why now? It's like you said, it was 1899. Yeah. Well, so, maybe they're just really, really bad at police work. It's just literally taking them this long. Or, you know, as we said, there's something big happening. All these things piling up one on top of the other seem to mean that, that something massive is going to happen soon. Yeah. Okay. And well, all these things happening now are, are all like kind of interrelated. Well, we basically have two storylines going on in this episode. And one thing I have liked is that, 
you know, in many, many episodes in the run of Lost Girl, we'd have three and sometimes four storylines going on in a 43-minute episode. So, you know, but here we've just basically got, you know, Bo in Dyson's memories, you know, in, in 1899 Paris. And then the other, we've got uh, trying to save Dyson from the Unamen's execution. I mean, we've got the little tiny thing where uh, – uh, Dyson and Kenzie and, and, you know, Dyson's impressed that, that she got past the Una men's tells her that, you know, when we get out of here, it's time that I start training you and to be what a shadow thief. Shadow I love thief. It. Yeah. I love it. Don't know exactly what it is, but well, I think, it means I think we have an teach idea. her how to steal shadows. You know, and then, oh, then okay. you're going to sell them to like when Peter Pan, like when he loses his shadow, oh. which you wouldn't know because you don't know the story of Peter Pan. Well, I do know it from... Once upon a time. Oh, did he lose yeah. his shadow there? Yeah, yes, he did. Oh, okay. But, so, uh, you know, I would maybe in the Fey world that there's like this big kind of black market of people who have, you know, lost their shadows and so, you know, need a shadow thief to steal them back. All right. Now, the, the other thing that we get out of this episode is we get a, a, a clear idea of the genesis of the Fey colony in North America, right? We, we find out, you know, we see Trick and Dyson. First and meet Phil meeting. Collins too, Peter and Gabriel. What? <laughs> you, said, you said the genesis of of oh, the Fay in get, North America. So uh, I get it. I was okay. just making a reference. All right. Um, <laughs> I was hoping you'd catch it. That's okay. Uh, okay. All right. Anyway, so uh, you know we now you know we've asked many times tricks the Blood King. So how does Dyson have his ear so much? Well, now we know. Dyson is his second yep. and, you know, because of Dyson's, uh, being pure of heart, uh, you know, trick reveals himself to be the blood King tells Dyson that he's a hero. It's his destiny. And what, you know, that, that what I did like here is that we get this whole sense of Dyson just being lost, just being this lost individual, you know, the lost boy, if you will, which parallels with, you know, the lost girl. And Peter Pan again. And Peter Pan again. So. Yeah, and how fitting that Bo, the lost girl, then, you know, kind of takes over, well, not takes over, becomes a part of the memories and actually plays out the role of this lost boy. It's really right. cool. But I also love the narrative little thing that they did there where when Bo is in his memories, Bo plays... Dyson, but then we have it switches over to Dyson telling the story to Kenzie, and in those scenes, Dyson is back as himself. Did you notice oh, that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I thought I was like, that is so cool. I really like how they did that. Oh, uh, that's true. Um, you know the you know we see that you know the Dyson that we know, and, and look, obviously the figure of Dyson in the Lost Girl fandom is sort of a polarizing figure. It's it's almost like people love him or hate him. But, you know, I mean, he has been, uh, I don't know if chivalrous is the right word, but but he's not this Dyson of pre-1899, who was apparently, by all appearances, a pretty bad dude. You know, lying, cheating, stealing, killing, whoring, and, and you know, I mean, he's none okay, of those things. not all of those things are bad. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the killing and the cheating, okay. Um, yeah, lying, you know, yeah, cheating, yeah. 
So, so it's almost, you know, the, this 1899 is at the beginning of, of Dyson's redemption and that, uh, you know, he admits that his ego and his arrogance was his biggest crime, you know, like a hubris, if you will. True. He realizes that because, you know, he gets Flora killed because of his arrogance. Right. And, and the, the meeting with Trick is really what sets him on the road to becoming the person that he is today. Which, while not perfect, is certainly, you know, on the right path, I think. Right. But we also know he was a good guy before because we saw him back when he uh, ended up breaking away from his pack and why he left his pack. So I wouldn't say he was necessarily a bad guy, but a lost boy, I think, is the best way. You know, well, like you he wonder just if, truly lost his, his way. Well, right. But you wonder if it, it's that's what set him on the road. Oh, that's totally what set him on the road. Yeah, Trick said yeah. as much. All right. Well, you know, one of the obviously this is a lot about the shoes, about these these hell shoes, and the the prince comes in right now. He he meets uh, yeah, uh, Prince Vex. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, he's pretty cavalier with these shoes that are theoretically. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, you know, he's got so, unlocked box that's just sitting yeah. on the bed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he they're called the hell shoes for a reason. The one guy just has them sitting in the box, not even locked up, nothing, no no security about these things at all, carrying them, them around with them. And then uh you know, then Dyson says, Hey, I know what we're gonna do with these things called the hell shoes. Let's put them on your feet. How about that for the idea? You know, it's just yeah. like really doesn't anyone think that the name hell shoes would be indicative of a certain level of seriousness with these things and maybe a bit of caution yeah you would think um all right now like you said i mean the 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 really cool thing in this episode was that bo is in dyson's memories so Raisha, she's experiencing what dyson experienced so the first memory we see her uh, he, she, <laughs> you yeah. know, Dyson's in bed with two young sisters, father, yeah. I assume they're sisters. I think that was, yeah. Cause well, yeah, he, right, he says right, right. his daughters later when he confronts, right. Father barges Dyson. in and Dyson, I guess, you know, uh, shifts into the wolf and escapes through the wall. Now the, the audience obviously sees Bo as Dyson. Uh, the father's about to shoot Dyson trick wielding a bow staff takes care of the men and tells Dyson, follow me if you want to live. Well, actually, he says, follow me if you want sanctuary. But right. Basically, so yeah, definitely a reference to that. Also kind of reminiscent of uh, Yoda in uh, Star Wars Attack of the Clones when you know, he comes in and fights uh, Count Dooku, I thought, a little yeah. bit. Oh, yeah. And we're seeing a lot of re- you know and and again going back to what i you know my my statement about the reliance on you know storytelling gimmicks again you know literary cultural historical allusions i mean i mean they're great but i i just get the sense that it's being overdone here you know mm-hmm. i mean you know we've got how many comic book references in these two episodes which we'll get to uh, you know, the, the, the reference, I forget the wording. I got it in my notes somewhere, but, you know, Bruce as the Hulk, you know, gamma ray dude, or I forget what's, what, what she calls him, but, uh, all right. Well, anyway, um, all right. So we, we've got this whole thing about the hell score 
and these shoes are sought after by the most powerful fae, including the one who wanders. The one who wanders, yes. And they can only be worn by a worth, worthy hero, and parents, apparently the prince has uncovered them, tells Dyson to intercept them, and it's said that they can lead to the end of days, which then plays into your whole you know, apocalyptic theory, which, you know, again, I think we're going to, we're going to see something that that's, you know, going to make the uh, uh, the battle with the Garuda look like child's play. I agree. So, especially since this guy they're going up against, as we said, described as pure evil, and even Trick is scared out of his mind about this guy. So, you know, this is a crazy, scary dude. Did Did you like Kenzie as the barmaid? With yeah, the, Angel. Uh, with the yeah. angel wings. Oh, and, yeah. you know, so here's what I'm thinking. Because at the end, you know, they say, you know, Dyson gave Angel the other one and told her to hide it. And so we know Angel is probably still alive. So we're going to see Cassidia Solo now playing Angel. Bo sees the guy in modern clothing walk past. And it it took me a while. And obviously it it, it clearly makes sense now that we know the end of the the. Uh, the episode, but the guy, you know, finally when I notice that he's carrying the metal pail, I'm thinking like, oh, you know, it's something to do with boxing, with fighting, and obviously, uh, um, now when when the heck did Dyson win the uh, the WBC whatever uh, title belt he had? Yeah, it could could have been a long time ago. Yeah, well, it it, I, like I don't a, recall him. Being. Well, it looked like a relatively modern. Yeah, you know, modern belt. I'm not even sure they had belts like that. You know, it did. Pride. I didn't even see. Is that it said WBC? I, I didn't even see like what it, what it said, like what kind of belt it was. Yeah, I, I assume it might have been some kind of like kickboxing belt, maybe or MMA, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm not even sure, but uh, I'm pretty sure it did say WBC again. I've got it here somewhere, but uh, greeted by Kenzie, Bo sees the guy in modern clothing, and it's like memory glitch much. You know, then yeah. we're introduced to Vex as the prince, and uh, and then we see Lauren as the cabaret singer that we we mentioned before, and Bo notices that Dyson likes her too, okay. and you know the whole thing, as I think you just mentioned briefly, we'll get into you know in the course of the discussion that a lot of what's going on in these episodes, Lauren and Dyson. You know, just their relationship is really getting uh, is being explored, and and is really, I don't know, kind of going to a cool place. I really like it. Yeah. Well, this whole thing where, you know, it's Dyson having sex with Lauren, but or Bo as Dyson having sex with Lauren. Yeah. Just was like I mean, it was like that was like the trippiest sex scene ever. I think. Um, <clears throat> So so that it was almost like not exactly sexy because it's so like you're so blown away by like the weirdness of the whole thing. Um, yeah, I, and again, I don't even know exactly what to make of that, but uh, well, I just think it's kind of indicative of the whole the three of them becoming like yeah, it's a love triangle, but no longer with. Dyson and Lauren as rivals for Bo, but just all of them as three 
people together because what I think is we're seeing is if you'll pardon me for a second, it's not a rant, but maybe a, a, a brief monologue that I, I kind of figured out like what I've maybe has always been kind of my issue with the relationships in this show. I think I've said this before. It's just, they happen too quickly, right? Okay. The minute Bo and Dyson meet by episode two, they're in bed together. Right. Uh, but I can't remember what episode it was that I'm sure there's a lot of our fans out there would know when, uh, Bo and Lauren sleep together, but it all like, they're, they're all happening. Like, Bam, 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 right? Like people, they, they meet, they're attracted to each other, they have sex, and now they, they think, now we have a relationship. But really, it's just kind of like, it's it's really kind of like a, a sex-based relationship. Uh, it's like they don't even have time to really get to know one another or get to explore anything else besides the sex of the relationship. Um, so I, I just have never felt like any kind of really deep connection between either Bo and and Dyson and Bo and Lauren. Well, and now, I guess... I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say part of, I guess, again, what bothers me is that we're... Look, obviously, I'm a self-avowed shipper, but again, it's like we're spending too much time for my taste on relationships. You know, let's, let's get to some story here. And, and look, I, I guess you certainly could argue that, well, relationships are part of the story. And... Obviously, there's truth to that. Yeah, I like how they didn't hammer on the relationships. I mean, they kind of put the relationship stuff in there, like a little bit, like a morsel at a time, like, you know, putting like a little bit of Tabasco sauce in the soup or something, um, but not, you know, slogging us with it. Like, you know, just for an example, when uh, Bo and Dyson are in the Country Club episode, right? where we're just getting beat over the head for the entire episode. It's all about, oh, our relationship, our relationship. They just kind of stick it in there in, in bits and pieces and little scenes here and there. But what I think we're seeing is the sexual aspect of their relationships kind of backing off a little bit. And so now, especially Dyson and Lauren are able to kind of form a, a, a connection on a level that's a not adversarial and B is not kind of, I don't want to say polluted by sex, but certainly is getting confused by all the sex. Well, yeah. talking to me even about being confused, uh, you know, when Bo realizes she's experiencing sex with Lauren as Dyson, right. For yeah. invest for investigative purposes. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and Lauren realizes that uh, Bo's thinking of her, even in Dyson's subconscious, which makes her smile. So yeah, that, that was right. pretty cool. I definitely like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it just shows you that even though you say, well, how can you say the sex is backing off? We have that scene. But I think just in general, especially in, in the the uh, episode eight, where we really see them kind of relate to one another more on a basic human level, not on this you know, petty squabbling and and controversies because of because of, of of basically of sex of who's hooking up with who basically. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, um, you know, Prince comes into Lauren's room. Uh, Dyson as Bo punches uh, him out after Lauren opens the box with the shoes. Bo puts the shoes on Lauren, but we realize they are not intended for me. Well, Flora. He puts right. them on Flora. Flora, right, uh, and can't be removed. 
And, and I guess we go back to the statement that the shoes are to be worn by a hero, right? Yeah, it's just well, and, it's and just not that stupid. Lauren hasn't done heroic things because clearly she but it's has. It's not Lauren, right? Exactly. It's Lauren, and we assume it's Bo, right? Well, it it could be anyone. Well, it could be anyone. But it certainly wasn't Flora, and it could be Dyson, really. All right, but so, so it's probably, she, yeah, I, I, Bo would be kind of the natural person we'd suspect could be the, the wearer of the shoes. But yet... Um, but then that begs the question, are they really going to turn the shoes over to the Una men's? Well, uh, you know, it seems like they, they don't have much of a choice, but I, I, you're right, I doubt it. And how powerful are the Una men's? I, mean, uh, I, I guess seem they, like they are very powerful. Okay. Uh, so they are becoming, the. you know, I taunted them a couple of weeks ago saying they weren't that big and bad. And now I'm coming around to, maybe they are. But still, they only have one cage. Like, really? Like, you're, you're like, rounding up everyone and you're executing all these people, but you still just have the one cage? Like, seriously? You know, because when yeah. they nab Kenzie, they're like, yeah, stick her in the cage with Dyson. Like, what? Yeah. That's crazy. Um, well, hey, you was know. That, was that Pietro we saw getting killed in, in the, the beginning? I guess uh, maybe. Early I'm on, yeah, sure. yeah, they had the 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 there was a, a prisoner in the bars. They said the scavenger. I think I'm pretty sure it's Pietra, but she obviously she looked a lot different. But I think it was her. Oh no, no, oh yes, yes, absolutely, it was her. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. Um, so you, I told you we'd see her again, and you and, were right. And now you don't have to worry about seeing her after that. <laughs> That's you're right there. Also, all right. Um, all right. Why don't we talk a little bit for about Dyson? Uh, and his Unamen's execution, you know, Lauren comes at Bo's request and, and you know, I, I get a, a great line, Dyson's family, I've saved him before, I'd do it again. And, you know, while she's wiring up Bo, uh, it's clear that Lauren still holds some reservations about their relationship, even though Bo so says something flirty when Lauren places a sensor near her cleavage. And, you know, back to even Sally's comment about Bo not really respecting how Dyson feels about her. It's it's just almost like Bo is, I don't, I don't. She just doesn't doesn't care about people's feelings. Yeah, I don't know if it's deeply enough. Uh, yeah, there could be that, or you know, we we do we not forget that she is a succubus, right? Uh, and well, relationships said, are not her thing at all. Well, I said that way back in season one that that the relationship with Lauren had to be doomed because she's a succubus. Yeah, a relationship with anyone is yes. doomed because she's a succubus. You know, relationships are not her thing. And, uh, you know, Aoife told us that, you know, right back when she first, you know, came on the scene. Um, so is it because she's insensitive or is it just that's her nature? She's... A succubus. She's not used to, you know, she's used to whoever she likes, she goes for. And it's to her, it's not a big thing. And yeah, but they don't have to be mutually exclusive. I mean, you, you can still be a succubus and still be, you know, cognizant of other people's feelings. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. And it could also be that she's just kind of like knows that there's this kind of weirdness. And so how does she deal with it? She just kind of ignores it. Right. All right. Um, well, we get a, another great line out of Lauren. Lauren seemed to get all the good lines in this episode. Uh, 
you know, Bo mentions that uh, Lauren and the Morgan must be getting pretty chummy because of all the equipment that, that Lauren's got. And Lauren tells her, nah, I just took it. Got to think dark to be dark. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we bring in Trick's got Cassie the Oracle. Cassie, and, yeah, it's great seeing her again. Yeah. And, it's like uh, seeing an old friend, you know? And then we got, you know, Trick and Kenzie posing as monks getting in to see Dyson. The red string of fate. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess. Yeah. I'll, ma- I'll make that leap. That's good. But I liked, I liked the whole like inception type thing there that was going on. I just thought, yeah. Oh, I God. just, I really like another that, reference. That device. Yeah. Well, I oh, think yeah. totally would, could they do this without inception? You know? Yeah. Maybe, but you know, there's certainly a lot of aspects, especially bringing in her own subconscious into Dyson's and everything. That was, that was wild. Yeah, it was also nice to see Hale stand up to the Una men's, you know? Yep. Uh, yeah, it and, didn't and, you know, pan out too well for him. but No, you know. but, but you know, he, he did what yeah. he... Yeah, he grew a pair a little yep. bit. Uh, now, clearly, they had no desire to listen to anything uh, he had to say. Yeah, but and... they did consider, right? Because they considered it for, like, a couple seconds there, and then they said, nope. Well, but you got to like Hale calling them fascists. Yeah. And that uh, the Fae will rebel to rule themselves. Yeah, that so, was a bit thick. Well, but again, I mean, God, I hate to keep giving you credit for, for a good a prediction that I think is going to come true. But, you know, again, this, this you know, war down the road. So, you know, not really a civil war, I guess. But again, I think we're going to see the light and dark unite against the Unamens, throw them out, and then the light and bark can, you know, get back to, you know, battling with each other yeah yeah exactly which could be really because we know especially with the morgan who is you know a big time schemer big time opportunist uh remember this is a person who got in the bed not literally but you know was kind of on the side of the garuda and was playing for the garuda's victory yeah so here's someone who is you know, even if she does briefly unite, because she, you know one thing she hates the Unamens, we know that. But as soon as the Unamens are out of the way, you know, you know she's going to start stuff and, and you know look to make trouble and maybe start a full blown civil war between light and dark. Yeah. Now the one phrase that we didn't talk about: mortis invenio in unitate. Yes. Find unity in death. Yes. I think, um, or death, and you. I could. I'm trying to figure out like which. The, you know, Latin cases are really weird. Yeah, but it makes more sense that it would say to find unity and death, and rather than say find death and unity, though. You know that yeah, that could be. So we we don't know exactly what it means at this point, but uh, all right. Now, final scene. You know, again. All right, before we get there, I just got to say one thing because, like, yeah. before Flora. Before she dies, like she had like the now you haven't seen the X Men movies, no, so you probably didn't catch this. No. But her, she has like the Wolverine claws, right? Yeah. You say Wolverine has claws of adamantium, but ah, before his the adamantium was pumped into his skeleton to cover skeleton, he had just like it was just bones that popped out of his knuckles, like the claws like Flora had. So then she fights Dyson, right? So it's like Wolverine versus the wolf. Yeah, so uh-huh. I thought that was really cool. But uh-huh. there again, 
another uh, comic book reference that you said you kind of were annoyed with. Not not as scary as uh, the Nietzschean bone blades. True. Andromeda reference. All right, it's okay. I was just going with that. I had no idea yeah. what you were talking about. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, but we get to the end, and and again, it, it's time to find out why the Wanderer took Bo and what he wants. You know, Dyson says Angel has the other shoe. Uh, you know, we 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 know Bo's the hero. It's you know time to make things happen, and and it's driving me freaking crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, we got five episodes to go. Yeah, and we're really. No further along. I mean, we get bits and pieces, but uh, all right. Anyway, well, I think that that's what they're doing. Is they're giving you enough to remind you that that's out there. This kind of he's he's and it's it's kind of like what they did with the Garuda, right? Where like he was kind of in the background for a lot of that season, and all of a sudden in the last like four or five episodes, now is when it really kicks in. So I think now is like when it's really going to kick in. Okay. Well, anyway, all right. Maybe. Anything I've else said on that before? Yeah, anything else on that episode? Um, let me see. There's trying to think. Really, just the one thing. So, um, so when, when Bo like comes out of the her of Dice's memories, right? And um, Lauren goes through. She's like, "Say something." And then Bo says, "I have to save Dyson." I was totally expecting that for Lauren to carry back with, "Say something else." <laughs> Yeah, I thought that would have been a great line. Like I was yeah. totally expecting it, and, and but they just they they let it go. I thought it'd been hilarious if they had done that. So yeah, uh, so. you know. All right. Well, episode four hundred eight, Groundhog Fay, uh, Emily Andres, and for uh, I think a first time collaborator, Sam Ruano. I don't recall. I, I don't. We have not. I believe we've not seen that name before. Right, and uh, directed by Ron Murphy, who we've seen a number of times. All right, now. I think both of us, I mean, we're all for gratuitous sex. Um, I'm not sure I've seen a hotter, sexier scene in a TV show than this opening scene of Bo washing the uh, by now iconic yellow Camaro. Right. While Lauren holds a melting ice cream cone (laughs) and Dyson looks on mouth agape. Right. Um, yeah, I was I was completely expecting like you you've seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, right? I have, yes, many so times. So there's the the that famous scene where you know like um Judge Reinhold I think is on the is by the pool and and Phoebe Cates walks out and she takes off her top and everything. Right, right. And then he's just imagining it. He's actually masturbating, right? Right. Um uh, not those expecting them to to cut to Lord masturbate, but I was pretty sure that it was going to be like someone's dream because it was so like crazy and surreal and everything you know yeah but i mean it was to me i mean that was the highlight and 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 not just because of that but but really because of the way lauren and dyson reacted individually and the way they reacted to each other right um you know the melting ice cream cone was a a, an awesome touch that that was hilarious Um, and you know, and then we find out that Bo knows they're watching, right? And, and is just deliberately playing with them, which you know, which we maybe, kind of back up with with Sally and you have both said that she's right. kind of like not being terribly sensitive to the fact that both these people are in love with her, right? And she's out there doing that nonsense. But yeah, but as far as gratuitous goes, 
<laughs> it'd be hard to make a case for it not being completely gratuitous. But then again, with I absolutely agree that the, the, the good part of that scene is the reaction shots of Lauren and Dyson as they watch her. And then how uh, Hale snaps his fingers and the music ends and all of a sudden they're, they're, they're pulled out of the reverie. And now it's no longer both sexually cleaning the car, but, you know, grumpily cleaning the car and everything. Right. And, and, you know, you ask, what's the point? And, and I I guess the beauty of it is there really is a point. And and it's, I think to show that Dyson and Lauren are in the same situation, which look, obviously we know that, but the fact is that they're over their differences with each other, right? which I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. So. And, and that's like the main theme of this is, or the main, one of the main, not really a theme, but one of the main issues of this episode was uh, Lauren and Dyson coming to terms with that they have more in common that they, than otherwise, that they actually like each other and that there, there should absolutely be zero enmity between the two. Right. And, uh, and, and they're showing. Uh, you know, respect for each other that, you know, I guess we'd like to see both show for those two. But uh, all right. So in this opening scene, then we see the two gas uh, guys throw some guy into the engine. Well, I'm not sure what happened to the engine. Uh, It wasn't there anymore. Yeah. We later learned that they are Krampus and son. And, you know, you already did in, in Project X, the fact that Krampus is kind of the antithesis of Santa, kidnapping children, throwing them in a sack. He feeds on regret, which, again, was a, a pretty prominent thematic idea in this episode. Uh, picks a few Yule Fools each year and throws them into the quantum loop. So, all right. I mean, as a plot device, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, again... I'm going to put it out there. I liked it. I, I thought it was great. Um, I thought the, the writing was really tight and the details that changed each time was fantastic. Uh, I liked how the uh, Tamsin and Bo going through the different stages of like, okay, well, let's, what the hell? If we're here anyway, let's have a good time and party. And then uh, then the the realizing that uh, other people are disappearing and all this stuff. I thought I, yeah. you call it a gimmick. I call it a, a, a really cool narrative device. A different way, again, a different way of telling the story instead of just going with the same. Okay, we in the beginning someone gets killed and then we start some kind of investigation and we have to save somebody and in the end we have this resolution. It's you know this kind of. You know, story arc that we repeat over and over. Now they're finding different ways of telling the story, being more creative, going outside the box. And I like that. Okay. All right. Anyway, I I, I don't disagree with you totally. So uh, it's a free country, man. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. You, you know, another idea that that you know came up is this whole thing that everybody deserves a second chance, and you know that was kind of uh, Hale's thing. Uh, obviously, it comes up with Tamsin. And I guess it comes up with Vex. It, he's got a second chance to uh, keep his hand this time. Yep. Lawrence has a second chance to sew it on. <laughs> but I guess, why was Bruce in Candyland? I mean, I, I'm wondering, what did Bruce do? You know, I mean, he seems such a, a sweet, I mean, you know, once you look past his size, he, he seems like such a sweet guy. Right. But remember, he was the Morgan's enforcer. Well, he was true. So, so I guess, yeah, there you go. So, so re- but and being a sweet guy, having to do that, 
he's going to have tons of regret, right? Yeah. Because he is a really nice guy, and he had to do all this stuff as the enforcer. So, he's, you know, yeah, he's probably just real with regret. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the things about this this time loop is that, you know, we learn early on that, that Bo is aware that the time loop is, is occurring. Uh, she learns, I don't know, in maybe the second or third iteration that, that Tamsin is also aware of it. And then we learn that Hale is. Uh, I mean, I, I guess one of the questions – who, does Hale have any control over when the loop changes? Yeah, that's what I thought at first, but then I watched it the second time, and I realized they were just kind of doing a montage of all his attempts. Okay. Because the first time, like, oh, my God, is, is Hale controlling this somehow? But then so the he, second time, like, oh, it's just they're just you know showing the number of times. Because it's funny, right? All the times he kind of screws up. Miscues, right? Yeah. I mean – but so, did he voluntarily put himself into the loop somehow? No, he just found himself in it, and re- he, which he said, like he just he realized he was in it, so he figured. So uh, he, so he, he got picked by Krampus, right? I mean, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So the loop stops when Krampus finds someone with enough regret to tide him over, and that is Tamson. And, right. you know, we've seen that a lot with her, you know, as she's now, has she recovered all of her memories after her regeneration? I guess. It's, it seems like she seems more like she was, you know, last season, though not still, you know, different, mm-hmm. still not as hard and cynical. Right. Uh, but certainly more like there than she has been so far. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, we don't really pursue it. It's just kind of a, I don't know, not necessarily a throwaway line, but the, you know, the gang is still searching for the hell shoe, but that wasn't really part of this episode. So we know they're, you know, there's still, that's an ongoing investigation. Now, Hale and Kenzie, you know, again, you know, I'm still not sold on their relationship. It's, I don't know. They're okay, but it's. Again, I've hated every relationship, but I'm kind of liking how they did this one, how they're playing this one out. Yeah, Uh, I guess what, you know, I I, I know I'm sounding like a a prude, although I said I like the opening scene a lot and gratuitous, but, you know, it was like, their entire dialogue was just simply one sexual innuendo after another, and I, I just didn't find it funny. I mean, maybe the first one, but uh, but just, that's why I think it was it was great to see Hale screwing up so much. Yeah, you know, I, and then it, once he gets like the line right because he reads out of the poetry, then Kenzie pulls out like the huge box of condoms. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Um, and, and so it gets like it's like no matter what like if you try to manufacture something this relationship if you try to be anything but truthful and from the heart it's going to fail right Basically. but I, I what i did like and and i think you know you kind of alluded to this in general it's they didn't jump into bed like everybody else has exactly and that's why i like it because they've had a chance to establish a core relationship to kind of pine after each other a little bit, but not so much where they're obsessed with one another. And now 
you know, like I said, I go back to that that scene with them sitting on the park bench. Yeah. You know, every other relationship in this story has been, I like you, let's go in the bed. Now, here it is. They admit that they like each other, that they're into each other, and they just snuggle on a park bench. I thought that was like, you know, that's kind of like, that. there you go. That's that's the way to play it. Yeah, and he admits that she's his first love. Right, I mean, and, you know, clearly he's had women before. I mean, we've right. certainly seen, you know, which we know we, that from like the first time we met him. Right, he talked about how he had um, was think, with like some fae that could multiply herself. Right, right. So, it, but again, that was you know that that was pretty pretty interesting scene there, and 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 again that whole idea of everybody deserving a second chance, and you know, so so we'll we'll keep an eye on that one now. Uh, to me, the highlight of the episode, Lauren and Dyson, and, you know, they're watching Bo wash the car, clearly on the same page. They're both, you know, team Bo, but, you know, it's the interplay between the two of them, especially at the gas station, you know, both funny and telling, um, <laughs> that, you know, when Bo says she's tired and gets in the back seat, she doesn't want to drive. Dyson and Lauren are both trying to, you know, kind of, you know, butt in front of each other to get in the back with her. Dyson gives way to Lauren, you know, and, and very judgmentally of him. Well, but I, again, it, it goes back to that respect. Yeah. You, you know, that, that, that he respects Lauren, you know, he, he understands she's in the same boat he's in and you know, that, you know, the, the gentlemanly thing to do. Um, right. Which is being a gentleman is being respectful though. Yes. And, right. uh, but you know, then they get in the car and like, uh, I can't remember either Bo or, Lauren like taps the back of the seat in front of her, like, "Hey, we're going to road. We're just like four buddies on a road trip," and that's again why I like these last two episodes because they're getting back to that core of these friends. You know, the idea of friendship, not being all this sex stuff, but but the friendship, and that's what I really like about about how they're going with this. Okay, well, let's get into Bo's box. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, again, I mean, it might as well get it out now. It, it might as well freak, say it now. It freaking drove me nuts. That uh, uh, all right? Anyway, well, so- I, I think they know that they kind of were overplaying that joke. But even after we, as the audience, have heard it kind of enough, uh, Vex is still giggling. <laughs> you know, just to show, like, like as a, as a character. I think that last time when they said it, it was really just to kind of show Vax as like he's still like kind of immature and like the guy who will, who will laugh at a joke like that every time you tell it even if you told it a thousand and one times yeah you know? I, know, I know all right so now but you know obviously this whole thing about the box that it's addressed by Bo to Bo sent to the dark archives and right and as Dyson says like why you know she from the death train, she even she mailed this to herself. Why are we even having this discussion? Right, yeah. and 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 then uh, I think it's Lauren that says it. Although I'm, I I could have it wrong, could be Dyson. Is that what I think it is? Right, and, Shades of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, total reference there. They open the box. We don't see what they're looking at, and she says, "Is that what I think it is?" Just straight out Pulp Fiction. I loved it. Right. Now we do get to see, you know, in the, in the last one of the last scenes of the episode what it yes. is, but we still don't know what it is. I mean, we know it's a yeah. a glass bottle of some dark liquid. 
But, or smoke. Or well, yeah, right. I guess it could be. I'd have to look at it again. But but yeah, I guess it could be. But they decide not to tell Bo about it. Right? No. Well, Lauren doesn't tell Bo about the the, the oh, wait. that they have the How box. How she get the box? Kenzie brings the box, right? Right, right. All right, okay. And Dyson, Dyson says they can't give it to Bo. Now, part of the you know obviously that's the mystery that that they better address early on in episode nine. Uh, you know, we'll see. Um, well, you know, there, it's not going to come up right away, Dave, because they ended it with the big cliffhanger of, you know, oh, there's this mysterious bottle. And you think, oh, well, let's, you know, certainly they're going to, you know, continue right from there. But no, it's going to be something completely different. They're going to mention, hey, where's that bottle of yours? You know, yeah, remember well, that mysterious black bottle? Well, oh, probably- yeah. Uh, well, maybe halfway through the episode we'll well they'll probably get to that in the season six premiere so (laughs) all right uh (laughs) the drinking game (laughs) awesome where they're trying to come up with the pros and cons about Bo, and you know that and also whether they should tell her about the box and and that's when the uh, Bo's box jokes start uh vex finally has had enough and tells him he's sick of hearing about the most boring threesome in history (laughs) yeah which was uh pretty good which is great because he's always kind of expressed his disdain for all of this relationship stuff. So another reason why I find Vex very close to my heart. Yes, yes. Um, and then they start playing the first time I met Bo game. Um, the uh, They were really funny. I mean, uh, Zoe Palmer, I mean, Lauren was a great drunk in, in this. I mean, you know, they were... I mean, they weren't fall down sloppy drunk, but they were way past tipsy. Uh, it was awesome, you know. And, and Dyson asks, "Why are we fighting about this?" And and then and then it kind of gets serious for a minute, and then, and they both feel that they've let Bo down. And then, of course, they hug it out. But I don't want to say that it's Bo that's let them down, but it kind of is. I mean, I, I think the two of them have done absolutely nothing to let Bo down. I'm trying to uh, to think whether I agree with that or not, and probably for the most part, I guess, yeah, maybe. I mean, but you they, know, they have in a way because they've been at odds with each other so much that sometimes their decisions are meant maybe not so much for Bo's good, but for their own scheming way of trying to get a leg up on the other one. I guess in yeah, a way, yeah. so. Um, but but recently it seems like yeah, Bo's been kind of like out of the picture, and they've been dealing with a lot of stuff. And as as you said in in the beginning, that they uh, Bo has not really been kind of considerate of what they're going through. Um, right now, so. I guess to be fair, I mean Bo was kidnapped and put on the death train for and we really don't know how long. But, yeah, there is uh, that. All right, but uh, get one of the highlights. I mean, you always got a, like an episode that that features. At least we, we don't see it yet, but the idea of drunken surgery and, you know, that, that it was probably you that, that, you know, said way back that uh, he's going to get his, he's going to get his hand back somehow. Right. Yeah. Well, you do. The minute they put on ice, it did. But also a buddy of mine who is a, a surgeon actually kind of performed uh, drunken surgery on another one of my buddies one time. He had like a, like something, a growth on his finger or something like that. So he got out the whole kit and his scalpel and, and he cut it off nice all yeah. right um 
And then, you know, that, that line from Lauren, you're the only one that gets my predicament, Wolfie. You know, I, th- I think the, the, the relationship the two of them have evolved into is, is you know, I think one of my favorites in this show. Um, I don't want to say she's my favorite character in the show right now, but Tamsin, Tamsin. is yeah. probably my favorite character in the show. Oh, she, she's awesome. She's really, uh, especially with how much she's been changing, but each iteration of Tamsin is still like really kind of cool and awesome. I, right. you know, I liked Tamsin before. I thought right. she was awesome as the you know grumpy, disgruntled person, but uh, as the... No, now not necessarily world weary, but more experienced, knowledgeable, but yet still kind of a neophyte character. She is now still a great character. Well, is she in love with Bo? I think pretty much so. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, and 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 uh, um, I think it was in the second iteration of the time loop that she and Bo kiss. Uh, Again, and... Uh, right, well, the first one, she ends the first one. Right, right. By, and, by kissing. Uh, uh, did you catch before that what she tells her to do? No. She says, duck. Oh, I did catch that, yes. Uh, <sighs> the, like, yeah, uh, yeah, from Blink. Uh, all right, well, uh, a Doctor Who reference is always acceptable. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let that one go. Um, but then in that second, she and Bo kiss again, and Bo is all, you know, it's almost like, you know, that that whole question is like okay any any sparks and Bo says nada and Tamsin says speak for yourself well no no she didn't say were there any sparks they, well no no she didn't say it but I mean no, that's that's that, no that what they meant was because they thought with a kiss that would end that loop and they would Bo would find herself back in the car okay. so they kissed and it didn't happen and Bo says nada as in oh. What we expect to happen didn't happen. And then Tamsin interprets another, well, not interprets it, but has that second level of meaning to her saying, speak for yourself. You okay, know? right, right. So, so Bo wasn't saying that she wasn't getting sparked. She was just saying that the anticipated outcome didn't occur. Gotcha. Okay, so, um, and then we've got the, uh, I mean, the really passionate kiss that the two um, engage in later on. And, you know, so... Uh, you know, I, I think it, it's pretty well established now that that Tamsin, you know, has a thing for Bo, and you know whether it's reciprocal or not, we don't we don't know. But one of the, you know, when they're in uh, the little Willy Wonka candy factory there, uh, and she says, "If they make me candy, then I can't hurt anyone anymore, and everyone will like me." You know, pretty telling stuff. Yeah, definitely. You know, and we kind of you know suspected that you know as tough Tamsin, um, you know, didn't really care, right? But yet we see that maybe, you know, even though on the outside she showed she didn't care, obviously when people don't like you, that that hurts still, you know? Yeah. No matter how tough you are. Um, But I thought, like, that whole, like, the the confession and penance aspect of this, I I don't sound a little Catholic here, but, you know, I, I really thought that that, was really very well done and very meaningful here. Uh, Tamsin confessing to Bo that she led Bo to the Wanderer, and then Bo confessing to Krampus that she's scared. Because yeah. in the beginning, uh, she's like, scared? Me? Please. You know, again, that hard exterior, that's just like she had with the, the Una Men's, you know, the 
the in-your-face, kind of what we had said at the time was a little bit over-the-top kind of uh, rebelliousness, always showing this hard exterior. But inside, she finally admits, I'm scared, I need help. Right. Well, and and I think it's Trick that even says that that Yule is a sacred celebration of contrition. So, you know, that, that certainly makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've talked a number of times about, or, or not necessarily talked, we, we've kind of posed the question, are you allowed to change sides? And, and I think our evidence, you know, you know, can light then become dark or dark become light? And I think we would probably, if we had to answer it, we'd say no. But that's kind of the, uh, the, the conflict that's, that's arisen here is that, that you know, Bo is now dark, uh, you know, against her will, apparently, Tamsin, even though she's dark, is exhibiting all the qualities of the light and clearly wants to be liked, and it's the light that like her. So it, it'd be interesting to see what happens in that regard. Yeah, well, especially since at the end, they are both unable to go back into Bo's apartment. Yep. Because it's after midnight, and the light are celebrating crap is knocked, which is actually now is... St. Nicholas Day would, you know, because midnight, that changes from Krampus Nacht to St. Nicholas Day. So now is when everything, I guess, returns to status quo. Yeah. And light and dark can no longer hang out with each other. Right. Now, speaking of dark, um, Krampus tells Bo there near the end that there's enough darkness in her to make candy for centuries. The guilt, the denial, complex emotions make the best candy. You know, and then, you know, you mentioned about her confronting her fears and, and you know, that, that she tells him she's terrified of what she'll become, what she's capable of, and, of course, the, the wanderer. So, uh, again, I mean, my problem is just, you know, it's less about, again, what, you know, obviously I was calling them, you know, storytelling gimmicks, which, okay, they're fine, they're cool, and I, and I enjoyed both, but I, I guess I'd just like to see the plot moved along a little more rapidly. That's all. So now one of the questions I had jotted down, you know, is Tamsin the new Kenzie? And and I guess on, on the one hand, maybe yes, she will become Bo's running buddy. But the difference obviously is that that Tamsin seems to have a thing for Bo that Kenzie never did. Yeah, true. You know, hey, no one can ever replace Kenzie. No, well, I, I know all. what you're saying. No, no, I agree. Yeah. But uh but yeah, I think we're going to probably see an increased amount of Tamsin because, you know, Tamsin always, what she has said over and over the season is Bo doesn't like me. When she knows what I did, she won't like me. And even now, that she, even though she confesses to Bo what she did, Bo says, you still says, you're my friend. I right. need your help. Well, then, so certainly now that the, those barriers are down and, and they can, you know, be a more effective fighting force. Right, because it's that recognition that that many of our actions we you know, I guess it's not completely true to say we have no control over them, but you know, very often we're controlled by others and and I think that's the, you know, acknowledgement on Bo's end. Um you know, and then I guess the last scene we find out that, you know, Lauren's gone with Vex, apparently Lauren's going to try to sober up a little bit before she does her surgery. Well, she uh, already did. Dyson's passed out. Because, because, well, Kenzie says she's going to try and sew it on properly. Right. So I guess the drunken surgery did not work out so well. Right. And Kenzie gives Bo the box. Uh, it, now, is, is that with Dyson and Lauren's blessing? Or it's just 
she did it. But, you know, anyway, we find out, like we said earlier, that it's some kind of bottle with dark liquid in it. and Or dark smoke. Or, or dark smoke, absolutely. Either way, I'm looking forward to – now, There's we're, we're recording on Friday the 3rd of January? Yep. Okay. And there is no episode on Sunday. I think they're taking a week off, if I'm remembering correctly, so that uh, they'll come back then on the 12th. And I think then, as you mentioned, the 13th is when the season premiere will air on Sci-Fi in the U.S. Right. Fi- finally. Followed so, by Being Human. Right, right. So we're, uh, you know, we've got to wait another week or so for episode nine, but, you know. I'm looking forward to it. Just yeah, give me some damn answers. Come on. <laughs> You're a little too eager. I know. I know. I, like I said, I just, I really appreciate the the change of pace here, the unique way of narrating the story. Uh, I love the Groundhog Day thing. I love the the two versions of the story, Dyson and Bo for for episode seven. I just thought that was great. The writing was was very good. Uh, both of these episodes, uh, direction was awesome. Uh, just you know, I really I, I enjoyed them. You know, they're just really more entertaining than than some of the more recent ones have been. Yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts? Yes, I do okay. want to say one thing because do, do you not have a theory as to what the bottle is? Um, you know, I really don't actually. I, I was sitting there thinking about it, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, it, it could be anything. Uh, feel at some level that it's 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 not good. Well, yeah, especially because you know they know what it is, or apparently kind of know what it is, and don't want to give it to her, right? Or Lauren. But then so, it, it kind of goes back to the shoes, though. If it's really that, I mean, why? Okay, if you don't want to give it to her. Why'd you just leave it around so that Kenzie could take it and give yeah, it to I, I mean, did they say they weren't going to give it to her? Because I kind of – I don't think they ever really settled that issue. They were kind of talking about it. They never really settled it, and then they hugged it out, and then that was like kind of it. You know, like I, I don't know if they ever definitively said, no, we're not going to give it to her. Yes, we are. Okay. Well, I, you could I, be I right. I, I, I don't know. I, I just I can't recall them definitively saying that. So anyway, well, here's my theory. And it's probably way off, but my theory is because what have you know, your frustration is we haven't seen the Wanderer, right? Yeah. Well, could it be because he's in the bottle? Okay. You know, that somehow Bo was able to entrap him on the train and put it, him in this bottle and then send it to herself, which is crazy. So actually, the more I say it, the more stupid this whole theory sounds. Well, I'm now, just gonna I'm plunging ahead with it anyway. Okay, now I, I don't think, know about the I don't know about the official uh, Peter Pan story, but but certainly in Once Upon a Time, I mean that they trap Pan's shadow in a bottle, if I recall correctly. I so. didn't see Once Upon a Time. Oh, I know you didn't. But what I'm saying is, maybe your your idea is not that far fetched. That that you know that that that's uh, yeah yeah maybe that that is a good theory. So yeah, I don't know how good it is. I, but I, that's just my my thought when I saw it. I'm like, you know, that kind of like black smoke. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'll throw it out there. Okay. All right. That sounds good. All right. Well, um, 
You guys can drop us a line at fatalistpodcast at gmail.com. Check out the website, fatalist.podbean.com. Uh, send us a voicemail. Uh, we're not too much action, as we keep telling you on Facebook. Uh, tried to make the occasional tweet. Uh, keep downloading us through iTunes. And I don't know what your uh, ending thought is going to be tonight, but I watched i don't know if it was a tv show or a movie but uh you know one of the characters goes i got nothing oh yeah so well he probably stole it from me they probably have a good point so (laughs) all right well anyway until next time trick can suck my left tit